Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined as usual by Terry Fakes. We're taking a little deviation from a difficult text this week and from our Revelation question and answer podcast, which will come at you next Friday. And uh, we're going to talk about an issue that I think is a kind of a difficult issue and one that we've gotten a lot of questions about. Yes, I've for several years now, I've gotten questions uh, about this idea of unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament. And that's a that doesn't really do justice to the argument. But basically, probably Andy Stanley is the best known person who has been advocating this. And, you know, the the basic idea people come to ask me is, uh, you know, the idea of do we only need the resurrection to be a Christian uh, can we just get rid of the rest of the Old Testament and focus only on the resurrection of Christ? Uh, people will say things like, uh, "Is if that's true, then uh, does the gospel stand alone, which is the resurrection of Christ? Do Are the gospels more important than the rest of the New Testament? The, the questions I get come in many questions and a wide variety, but they're all sparked by this basic argument, if you will about uh, unhooking parts of the Bible from the essence of the Christian gospel. And I think instead of repeating any given individual's argument, I think it would be good to just take a few minutes and make the best argument for this. In other words, let's not argue with a straw man. Let's make a steel man argument. What is the best or most persuasive way of putting this, uh, this argument forward, Cole? Well, that is one of our principles at So We Speak is, and it's, sometimes it's hard to do, but we always want to argue with the steel man argument as opposed to the straw man, uh, the mm -hmm. best form of the argument. So let me let me see if we can make this argument. Uh, I'll give a little bit of background on this. Actually, this argument started from Andy Stanley in 2018. He was giving some talks that were previews or responses to the publication of a book, which was called Irresistible. And the premise of the book was, you know, how do we make Jesus irresistible to the next generation? Which I think we'll come back to this. There's some truth in that desire. And then there's the seeds of error in that question and that desire. Uh, but anyway, the, that's the premise of the book. And so he starts giving these talks about one of the things that will make Jesus irresistible is to unhitch from the Old Testament. Don't try to defend the Old Testament to people. Uh, instead, just go to the New Testament. We're New Testament people. He makes this convoluted argument that Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, the disciples unhitch from the Old Testament. Of course, any mm -hmm. biblical scholar would tell you that that's not exactly what happened there. But anyway, so there was this whole big thing about uh, this argument. And at some point, I think I was tweeting about it, uh, saying, you know, some things about I don't think this is true or something like that. Well, Andy Stanley tweets back at me and says something like, hey, instead of trying to read my mind, why don't you read my book? And so he asked me to send him a direct message. So I sent him a direct message on Twitter and he actually and I sent him my address and he did send me the book and I did read it. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll give props to Andy for that. That was a that was a classy move. Uh, it also was good for book sales, but it, it was it was a classy move to do that. And uh, I've noticed that basically since then he's only developed this argument further and further. That's kind of the genesis. 
the clip that has been going around recently, if you're on Instagram or Twitter or any kind of social media, is a talk that he gave in 2019 at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, which it surprised me that, one, he was speaking at Dallas Seminary, but two, that he was giving this kind of talk at Dallas Seminary. But what I didn't realize was he has a master's from there, and uh, his daughter goes there. So he's got connections to the seminary, and in this talk, he his basic point is the time has come to develop a fresh approach to talking about the Bible. And here's the fresh approach. For the sake of the next generation, and this is a quote, tether the faith to the event of the resurrection rather than to the authority, inspiration, and infallibility of the Bible. So if we're going to reach the next generation, he says, we need to tether their faith to the resurrection, the event of the resurrection, rather than the authority, inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility of the Bible. And the way he builds this argument is interesting, and I think this is probably the best version of this argument that I've heard. Uh, So I'll lay out a little bit of what he says, and then maybe we'll add some things to it. He kind of narrates his genesis of coming to this conclusion by saying he's watching a video with Sam Harris. Now, you'll remember Sam Harris is one of the four uh, new atheists, and he's written a book called Letter to a Christian Nation. Mm -hmm. I get in a video or an interview about this book, Andy Stanley's talking about watching it, and, and, and Sam Harris is just dismantling the Bible. You know, the morality of God in the Bible is actually sure. no morality at all. You know, the usual line. Uh-huh. Tearing down all of that. And so he says, it dawned on me that Sam Harris shares an assumption with most Christians, that the Bible is the foundation of our faith. As the Bible goes, so goes the Christian faith. And he said, you know what? You sh- Everybody in here should read that book. Read... Uh, Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris. And if your faith survives, he says, because you might become an atheist, <laughs> then see if the youth in your church's faith would survive it. Think of, think to yourself, if a youth in your church took up this book and they read it, would their faith survive it? He says, and that's when it dawned on him, we, we need to take a different approach. We can no longer leverage the Christian faith on the accuracy, inerrancy, authority of the Bible. So we're, as in 2018, he was saying we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Now he's pretty much saying we really just need to unhitch from the Bible itself. Let's just right. tether to the resurrection and let's unhitch from the Bible. Uh, because, and then he goes into uh, a few of the claims that we can discuss individually later. There was no Bible for 400 years. So you have the event of the resurrection, Jesus ministry. He teaches, preaches, he dies, he rises from the dead, and then the church is born. And it's only 400 years later that the church gives us the Bible. Uh, Secondly, the Bible did not create the church. The church created the Bible. Um, Our story doesn't begin in Genesis. It begins at Easter. Uh, Another thing that he says is, we don't believe the, we don't believe something is true because the Bible says it, we, we, uh, but because we know it's true. So for example, the gospels are not true because they're in the Bible. They're in the Bible because they're true. So he's going down and he's basically making this fundamental point. The resurrection supersedes the Bible. The only reason that we care about the Bible, uh, is because we already believe all of these things. So he says in there, don't ever say, uh, the Bible says so don't say that anymore. Uh, He says, if you listen to my teaching, 
Uh, I don't say the Bible says. I say if someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you should pay attention to whatever that person says. The authority is located now in the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, not that some document happens to be in the mm-hmm. Bible. And he says, here's the, here's the apologetic. God exists. Miracles are possible. Skip the whole Testament. Go straight to the Gospels. The Gospels are reliable accounts of historical events. Therefore, Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, what Jesus says can be trusted. That's the way that we should be doing evangelism. That's the way that we should be talking to people about faith. That's where we should tether our faith. Now, in the midst of all this, he says, you know, I'm an inerrantist. And I read the Bible every day. And uh, you might think that I'm saying that I don't believe the Bible. But all I'm saying is stop. don't change what you believe. Change your tactic on what you want people to believe uh, first and foremost, which is the resurrection. So that's his version and my version combined with what I think is maybe the strongest version of this argument. We need to untether from from basically leveraging the dependence of the Bible and the dependence on the Christian faith. You know, Christianity can be true without the Bible being true. You can come to Christ without having to come to a full knowledge and consent of everything the Bible says. Um, That's, and, and so we need to make our efforts in evangelism and ministry along those lines, not along the biblicist, let's just worship the Bible and believe things because the Bible says it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good summary. Actually, it's a little stronger argument than he makes, but I, I think that's a fair uh, way of assessing that argument. And you can see where it comes from. And there are a few points in that argument that I would definitely agree with. I mean, the fundamental statement that we worship Jesus Christ, we don't worship the Bible. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, There are, uh, uh, I think there's a desire there to uh, get the word out to this culture in a way that they will hear it. Mm-hmm. However, I'm going to part ways pretty quickly on this, that I think there's far, far too much uh, emphasis on our power to convince people to become Christians. Uh, making Jesus irresistible is something that we're going to do. And I think that uh, I'm going to part from the church growth movement on that. I'm, I'm going to rely on the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to rely on our ability to make him irresistible. But I do understand that if you thought about it that way, that would be a noble sentiment. So I'm going to give a benefit of the doubt there and say, if I believe that, I might buy this, and that it was a noble sentiment. I simply don't. The The problem with this is uh, that there are probably Andy Stanley is the most persuasive of this because he's such a good speaker. Uh, He knows the rhetorical techniques, uh, and these are very powerful. He's intelligent. Uh, He knows his Bible fairly well. I I think he's a very persuasive advocate for something like this and will probably take a lot of people with him. I do think it'll. if you just wait and watch, you'll see this is not the end of this road for him. Mm -hmm. Okay, getting back to the argument. Uh, The half-truths in this argument are probably the biggest problem because this is going to be really convincing unless you think about it for a few minutes. And and I don't mean that to sound as maybe as insulting as it did, but this is compelling if you don't stop and think a little bit. For example, one of the claims is that they didn't have a Bible for 400 years. That's a disingenuous claim, and it's not exactly true. If you look at the accounts in Acts, for example— Paul went into the synagogue everywhere he went, 
and it says he reasoned from the scriptures. Jesus, when he went into the synagogue, opened up the scriptures, the Old Testament, and reasoned from the scriptures. The letters of Paul and Peter and James and John, everything we have in the New Testament was circulating in the first century and broadly circulating in the first century. So I simply want to take issue with that and because it, it's very misleading to say that they don't have a Bible. Even in the New Testament, Peter calls Paul's letters scriptures. So that would be one place I would start to say, let's let's be a little more careful and let's clear up some of the half-truths. Mm-hmm. But I'll pause there and kick it over to you for, for other points to make. Yeah, that first one is the one that sticks out the most. I mean, I, that that's just an objectively false statement that there was no Bible for 400 years. In fact, you can go back to the episode that we did with John Mead a couple of months ago on the development of the canon, or go read Scribes and Scripture, which actually mentions uh, Andy Stanley's book in their book. The claim that, one, there wasn't a Bible for 400 years is, is factually inaccurate. N- number one, the first canon list is actually in the fourth century, but most people realize that the fourth century is in the 300s, and uh, it's in 325, and that right. would be less than 300 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. Second of all, that's not the starting point for the canon. That That is where we get the first and final canon list like we have in our 66 books of the Bible. But canon lists and groups of books were traveling around even in the apostles' own lifetimes and shortly after among their disciples. So to say that the the early church didn't have a Bible, they weren't reading the Bible, is false. That The reason that people wrote things down is the same as the reason people write things down now, so that people could read them. And they were doing that from a very early time. Uh, there's going to be more problems with this claim once we get into, uh, once we get past the veneer of, oh, well, we should just believe in the resurrection. Well, Andy, how do you know about the resurrection? Uh, yeah. How did you how did you come to find out all these people were witnessing about it? Well, because of what the traditional traditional belief about the Bible has been, the eyewitnesses, the apostles are writing down things that are circulating in the early church that then become our canon later on. That process begins in the forties, are probably the earliest documents we have in the New Testament. Certainly, fifties and sixties, depending on when you date the Gospels, sixties, seventies, eighties. By that time, you're starting to have authoritative apostolic witness that will later become the Bible. So that that claim is maybe the first and most obvious thing that's false about what he's saying. The second thing is, when you trace a a trajectory of Andy Stanley's thinking into this argument, uh, and you briefly mentioned this, he's starting with the assumption, what would be the most palatable thing that we could tell a non-believer for them to believe. And that is a noble desire. We do, we want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see people saved and we don't want to put anything extra in the way for these people that would keep them from coming to faith. However, it, it kind of has a, Hey, that's the big goal. And thanks God for the goal. We'll take it from here kind of mindset to it. There, there isn't just a what that God provides us with. There are many hows that God provides us with. And so there are certain ways that God has decreed us to go about reaching people. And we should basically say, who are we to try and reinvent a better way to reach people 
than what God has told us to do in the Bible and what Jesus and the apostles were doing. And that's where I take issue with what he says at the very beginning of this talk is the time has come for us to basically get a new way of talking about the Bible. Oh, the, the, the time has come in the year 2019, after 2,000 years of Christian history, now Andy Stanley has discovered that we should jettison the Bible and just preach the resurrection. No, it, it, just one glance at church history would remind us that there have been very, there have been brilliant people, there have been great movements, but if you look back and see what God has done, it's basically in line with what he told his people to do. The great commission, the great commandment, what the disciples were doing, what Paul was doing, what Peter and James and John were doing, that method, the hows of reaching people for the gospel, basically haven't changed. And it's not going to change because it's not just God's truth, it's God's method. And so while we all want to be sensitive to the fact that sometimes you have to change the way you talk about things uh, for a new generation, we should also be very wary of the fact that we don't really need to reinvent the way that we share the gospel. We don't need to reinvent the gospel. Uh, we just need to proclaim the gospel. Uh, I remember Jason Meyer's book on preaching is great on this point. Uh, the gospel does not need a facelift. Uh, we just need to be faithful preachers of the gospel because those, those words, God's words, are the only ones that are capable of doing the work of God. So I think there's a, a little bit of an impulse here that's probably great on the surface. We want to reach people but goes beyond uh, what is ours to second guess and reinvent. Yeah, I agree. Let me go back to uh, another point, uh, and it has to do with the argument about the nature of the Bible. And let's just, you can say Old Testament, New Testament, either one. The way that this wants to approach it is you don't, this argument doesn't want to have to defend the Old Testament. That's how it started. Yes. Either because the proponents don't believe that the Old Testament is true or believe that it contains a number of errors, or perhaps at best, they think it's a red herring that gets in the way of reaching people for Jesus. For whatever reason, they really don't want to defend that. Now it's moved on to, look, let's also not try and defend all the stuff in the New Testament mainly because on sexuality, on uh, gender issues, on power structures, the culture's pushing back against the New Testament, and that's getting, quote, getting in the way of reaching young people. So you've got two ways to go. And the way this argument chooses to go, and listen, pay attention to this, because this is pretty significant, because it fails if you think about it for a minute. And I've really given this a lot of thought, because I, I see the point. I see where you know, people are trying to go with this, is let's say that the Gospels are an accurate historical record of the fact of the resurrection. Well, you have to say that, because if you want to preach the resurrection, you can't find it in the Roman writings. You can't find uh, advocacy for the resurrection. In other words, you have to say, well, then how do you know your Jesus was raised? Well, it's a matter of history. Well, what history did you read? Well, here are four eyewitness accounts. In other words, you have to go to the Gospels to establish the resurrection. So now you want to say they're accurate historical records. You do not want to say, according to this argument, that they are inspired, inerrant, or entirely accurate. You don't want to be pushed into defending the inspiration or accuracy of them. You simply want to say 
They're accurate historical records so I can get on to the resurrection. Okay, that makes sense until you take the next step. Here's your big problem with that. I mean, there's obviously a huge theological problem there, but here's why this isn't even going to stand with an intelligent uh, atheist. They're going to say, well, that's interesting because I've got the gospel of Thomas in my hand and I've got the gospel of Mary Magdalene in my hand. I have the secret gospel of Mark in my hand and they say very different things. Now, would you explain to me why those four accounts are more accurate historically than the 20 or 30 other gospels, quote, gospels that have been dug up. That is not a tenable position in which to find yourself. You have to assume the authority of the New Testament, the accuracy of the New Testament to even establish the resurrection. So when I said this sounds really good, if you don't think about it, uh, this is what I mean is the next step Sam Harris is going to say is, why don't these others are just as equally accurate as those. In other words, you're not going to be able to stand that argument. That argument won't stand up in first-year college any better than trying to defend the Old Testament in first-year college will. So I I think there's a really fatal flaw in trying to move authority, uh, any inspired authority from God out of the Gospels and just try to treat them as accurate accurate witnesses to the resurrection. I I think that's a fatal problem there. I think it undermines everything you're trying to do here. Yeah, let me add uh, two things to that. I think the first one is, this is probably the issue where he is the most right in this argument, which is we do not leverage our evangelism on believing every verse of the old testament to be true so for example you do not have to believe all the minutiae of biblical history you don't have to believe that there was a worldwide flood you don't have to believe uh in the righteous cause of the israelites putting all these people in canaan to death in order to become a christian that point is true that he's making yes i agree with that that's actually a different point than saying we need to we need to tether their faith to the resurrection instead of the authority, inspiration, and inerrancy of Scripture. My thought is, why, if you're Andy Stanley, other than the shock value and maybe the cynicism, wouldn't you just say something like, let's tether their faith to the resurrection through the authority and inspiration of Scripture? Why wouldn't you just say that? Why wouldn't you just say, The Bible is the authoritative word of God. It is the account of the resurrection. We can, I think, provide proof for the resurrection in addition to the scriptures. But why not at least say in concert with the best evidence we have for the resurrection, which is the gospel accounts? And here's where Andy Stanley is, is too smart by half. The best evidence for the resurrection in the New Testament is not actually the Gospels. The best witness for the resurrection in the New Testament are our earliest documents. And any resurrection scholar is going to tell you this. 1 Corinthians 15.1, I am teaching you what I received from the apostles, that Christ died in accordance with the Scripture. That would be another problem for Andy Stanley's method here, and was raised according to the scriptures. So depending on where you date 1 Corinthians, 
you have a document, an ancient document, that is a decade plus earlier than any of the other Gospels. And Paul is saying that he actually got this from the apostles when he was visiting with them, which, if we take his word for it, was happening three to five years after the resurrection. And Paul goes on to say, in that same chapter, and his resurrection was witnessed not just by the apostles that I received this gospel from, but from 500 people. And from my own encounter with the risen Jesus, you should check with these people. So the the way that we can go back and prove the resurrection as a historical event, you can do that in stronger ways than just appealing to the Gospels. This betrays another assumption on Andy Stanley's part that you mentioned a minute ago. He doesn't want to defend what Paul says. He doesn't want to defend the Old Testament. He barely wants to defend the red letters He de- because Jesus says some very transgressive things in the Gospels. What he wants to do is basically defend the claims that there is a Savior. We can't really tell you anything that he said or did, but he rose from the dead, so we should trust him. That's, like I said, it, it encompasses maybe the truest part of this argument. That is essentially what you need to believe to be a Christian, that your sins are forgiven because Jesus paid for them on the cross, rose from the dead, showing that the payment cleared, He is coming back for us, and now we can live for God in a restored relationship. That's basically what you need to believe to be a Christian. You don't need to believe all that other stuff. But the only reason we know that is true is because God has authenticated it with his own word. Uh, One of the weakest parts of his argument, as you talked about, is there is actually no doctrine of inspiration or authority nested in his argument. You would come away from listening to this argument thinking, this is purely a human book. This is just a bunch of people who wrote about things that they thought had happened. And if that's the case, it's a lot easier to make arguments like these people were mistaken. These people were wrong because this kind of thing doesn't happen if God isn't involved. What Christians actually believe is that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it is written by God through the Holy Spirit through human authors, and thus it is a unique and authoritative book. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. That's the Christian doctrine of of inspiration. That is not present at all in the way he's understanding this. And uh, it's, it's funny because his view is actually not the view that you would find in the Gospels, that Jesus and Peter and the other disciples, which we can come back to that in a minute, but mm-hmm. the self-authentication of the, of the Bible as the authoritative word of God, what it claims for itself is a piece that's missing in that argument. And that, that is one of the weakest arguments. Now, let me add one more thing before we move off of this topic. When people make arguments like this, they, they're coming from a pragmatic place. Pragmatism is not always wrong. But pragmatism of a certain stripe essentially keeps people from coming to Christ. So let's just play out a scenario here where we go out and we do evangelism this way. We don't depend on the Bible at all. Uh, In fact, we don't defend the Bible, and we wouldn't defend the Bible. And we go ahead and present the gospel of a risen Savior, and somebody believes it. What what are they supposed to do after that? in, In fact, what are they actually believing in at that point? It reminds me, I was reading an article about uh, the whole big situation with Josh Butler that happened at the Gospel Coalition, which is probably worth its own podcast at some point. He publishes this article, very cringy, 
there's a mob online, the Gospel Coalition Keller Center uh, basically severs ties. He resigns. They pretend like he'd never worked with them. He doesn't speak at their conference. He gets completely thrown under the bus. For things that everybody at the Gospel Coalition believes theologically, they just wouldn't have said or expressed in the same way. The way he expressed things were, were wrong. But theologically, he's complementarian. Uh, he's trying to draw on the church tradition, and he gets stampeded. Well, there was a great article at Mere Orthodoxy about this, and it was written by Jake Medor, who's not one of my favorite writers, but I thought he just nailed this article. And uh, it's called, the article itself is called The PR Style in Christian Media. He makes this point about the fact that you essentially have a very progressive group of people who get mad online, and people who believe the same thing that Josh Butler does basically turn him over to the wolves. He says, every time you do that, you actually lose the opportunity to reach people with the truth. And here's, here's what he says. Indeed, the very act of making oneself suppliant in that way actually makes it practically impossible for progressives to genuinely hear the gospel from us. At best, what they will take is what we believe that the best version of progressive blue states value is simply to be Christian because Christianity helps us to be maximally inclusive, mentally healthy, committed to social justice. While there is a version of that statement that is true, the practical upshot of this is 99% of the cases uh, will be that our progressive audiences learn of a Christianity that does not require them to give up any of their idols. So what he's saying could be applied in, in every way. He's talking about progressives because those are the people that got upset about the post. You could make this argument about anybody. If your version of evangelism is basically to show people that it's kind of what they already believe, but better, all the things they kind of already want, but better. And what Jesus will really do is just kind of make you more of who you already are. You render it nearly impossible for those people to hear the true gospel. I worry about that same thing with Andy Stanley's presentation. We've catered to all of your assumptions. We've catered to all of your fleshly desires. We've trimmed out and dumbed down and made it as accessible as possible to where we have this very paper thin gospel now for you to believe. And I worry that presenting something like that, you almost can't be saved because there's no real call to surrender to an authority that's not your own, which is embedded in the gospel call. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think the I'm going to jump off on the whole authority thing, because let's assume for a moment the best about this, that the motives are good, that someone, as you started out by saying, someone comes to believe that this Jesus you're talking about was raised from the dead, that there really is a God. He raised him from the dead. And I believe that. Well, what now? How now shall we live? Uh, what do you do next? Because everybody does something next. And it, what do you what are you going to want to do? Well, what you're going to want to do is they're going to ask you the question, well, what does that mean for me? That's not trivial in this case, because at the bare minimum, what you're going to want to say is live like Jesus lived. Oh, that's nice. How is that? Well, actually, the best place for you to look are in the four canonical gospels which unfortunately I've told you are historical documents, not authoritative or inspired. There are many other places you can look, by the way, and but where you're going to want them to look are the things that are true. How do you know it's true? Well, it's a matter of authority. Well, now you have a problem of the authority of the Bible again. 
I'll give you a good, interesting quote from uh, Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian. He is definitely not known to be a, an extremely conservative theologian. I think he's still at uh, the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. But he wrote a book called Captive to the Word of God. And in that, he says this, and I think this is very astute. He says, you should note that Christian communities, to the extent that they are Christian, are nourished through the reading of the Bible. And then a little bit further on, he says, take the scriptures away, and sooner or later you will unchurch the church. What does he mean there? What he means is simply this. If you want to ask, what is it? What do I, what is it like to be a Christian? Or let me put it a different way. How can I then be like this Jesus? If indeed that's what you're telling me I need to do, you're going to have to have some source of authority, some authoritative answer to that. Or it's like, well, I'll just go be what I think a good Jesus would be, or I'll go be what I think a good Jesus will be. I don't think any of the proponents of this argument are yet to the point where they would say that that's okay. You know, I'll go live my own sexual morality, or I'll keep my idols, as you were just talking about. I'll keep all my gods of the culture, but I do believe in this Jesus. I don't think, honestly, think anybody's advocating that. But the problem is you've dug yourself a hole because now you have no source of authority because you have told them that the Bible is not authoritative. And as soon as you do, you actually have to stand up for that. So the problem, even if you're successful at, quote, converting, quote, someone, you really don't have anywhere to go from there because the only way you really know anything substantive about Jesus is from the inspired word of God and not just the gospels, but that's the only place that you actually know anything authoritative about Jesus. So I think it fails. Uh, it's disingenuous because even if you succeed at converting someone, you failed. You really have no way to tell them what it looks like to follow Jesus. Everybody gets to pick their own ideal of the best me, if you want to. Yeah, that's the circularity of this argument, is we jettison the scriptures to talk about the resurrection. We really can't talk about the resurrection without the scriptures. And the next part of this is, then if they believe in the resurrection and we call them to discipleship, we've jettisoned the scriptures so we can no longer know what it would mean to be a disciple. Uh, that's a fundamental flaw in this kind of reasoning. If it, like you said, if it is successful, it is unsuccessful. <laughs> right. And by its very nature, it cuts its own legs out from under it. The last point I would make on this is it's interesting that if you just read the gospels, you would not come up with this strategy because this is not Jesus and the apostles view of the old Testament and the rest of the scriptures. Jesus is very clear that all of the Bible points to him. So in Luke 24, when he's walking with the two on the road to Emmaus, what right. does Jesus say? He starts with Moses and the prophets, and he shows that every part of Scripture points to him. Jesus has a, a view, he says another time, the Scriptures cannot be broken. That the Word of God is our standard and our authority. He also says when he's debating with the Pharisees, he always appeals to scripture. When he's tempted by Satan, he appeals to scripture. When he talks about his resurrection, he says, as it is written, the son of man will die and rise from the dead. Uh, mm -hmm. Jesus is very committed to the old and what would then be the New Testament mm -hmm. being the same continuous story and that the scriptures actually are what we should look to to authenticate what's 
happening. Now, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's been a while. An argument that some people make is, well, that's all well and good when you're talking to Jews, but it's not good when you're talking to Gentiles. For example, when Paul goes to Athens and goes up on Mars Hill, he doesn't quote any scripture. He just preaches the resurrection, and the resurrection is scandalous to them, but some believe. So that's a model for us that when you're not talking to people that know the Bible or you're not talking to Jewish people, you shouldn't use the Bible. How would you respond to that? Yeah, that's another one of those barely half-truths, and that is that the early that they preached the resurrection in the book of Acts and in the Bible. Peter and Paul preached the resurrection. That's true. What's untrue is they only preached the resurrection. That's definitely not true. So you know that when Paul was with the Jews, he used the scriptures because he believed they were true, and so did the Jews. I will agree with this. When Paul in Acts 17 goes to Athens, he really knows— and I understand Andy Stanley's point, and I think it's a good one. I don't start talking to people that don't believe the Bible is true by saying the Bible says this. And Paul didn't start with that audience saying the Bible says this. He got there with that audience, by the way. Read all the rest of his letters, most of them written to non-Jews, and see how much scripture he quotes. So that that's just not even not true. But there is a good point there. And I think it is that he didn't start. He started with what they believed was true and then challenged it. And he established the existence of God, the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. So it's really uh, untrue, frankly, to say that they only preach the resurrection. They definitely preached the resurrection to everybody, but that's not all that they preached. So I will agree with one small part. There is no reason to say, thus saith the Bible to people that don't believe the Bible. And that's what Paul did. He said, well, you believe there are gods. You're wrong. There's one God, and he's revealed himself, and that's the only way you know him. And you know that deep down, and I'm here to tell you about the the person of God himself and that he was raised from the dead. Well, uh, you know, the, the point is, yes, that part is true. He starts with what they know, and he does preach the resurrection, but he preaches more than that. And uh, so, I, you know, that's that's a slightly true statement, but broadly not, because once they become converted, then you see Paul quoting all kinds of scripture when he writes to these Gentile believers, these Greek believers later. So, I, but I do agree with that one point. There's no point saying, thus saith the Bible, when they don't accept the Bible as authoritative. That, yeah, that's there kind is, of a duh there, statement, but I don't there think is a people point in do that. Saying thus says the Lord, uh, which is what you see throughout Scripture. And some of what God says that is most immediately uh, available to us is what he says in Scripture. So, yeah, we don't leverage the truth of Scripture for people that don't believe it, but we are forthright in saying that this is what we think the God of the universe has said, which we draw right. from the scripture. So if let's do a recap here as we bring this to a close. I don't want to end this podcast without saying there are some things that are good takeaways that are true from this. Uh, certainly we have big differences, but we want to be able to learn from anybody, which we can. And uh, we definitely want to learn from the best version of this argument. So I would say the truth here, the things that are worth remembering, we do worship Jesus, uh, and we don't worship the Bible. Now, that's a troubled 
saying because there's a lot wrapped up into that. But on its face, that is a true statement. We have a relationship with Jesus. We worship Jesus. Um, and and uh, we don't worship the Bible. Second thing we, we could say that we do we do call people in the gospel to believe in the resurrection, to believe in the event of the resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, uh, the resurrection of the dead, the return of Christ. We call people to believe in those things. Third, uh, we don't have to leverage the gospel on the complete current belief in everything that the Bible says. So, for example, we right. don't need to give a Bible test in order to establish whether or not somebody's a Christian. We can abide by the principle of faith seeking understanding. So once somebody comes to know God, there's a lot to explore and believe after that. So I, I think those are three solid takeaways, maybe correctives on some of the excesses that uh, Andy Stanley and others are trying to attack. But then we have lots of pushback to take away as well. Number one being the doctrine of scripture. Uh, we need a better doctrine of scripture than that. Number two, I would say uh, we, we don't need to reinvent God's own method for sharing the gospel. We can look to the scriptures to see the way that we should share the gospel. And that's been fine for Christian history. It will be fine uh, in the future as well. Uh, number three, I think we should reject some of the factual inaccuracies that have been made. The timing of the Bible, the way the canon comes together, the way the early church saw the Hebrew scriptures, I think that's something that we should just reject out of hand. And uh, then number four, uh, we, we should not be afraid to defend the Bible in the right place and in the right time. As an evangelistic impulse, we don't need to die on every hill, but certainly if we believe the Bible is the word of God, we need to believe that it can be proved true uh, against archaeology, against doubt, against contradiction claims. Uh, we should definitely want to stand up for the Bible. So there's a few on both sides for me that are my takeaways. What are your big takeaways? Oh, I think that's exactly true. Probably the biggest takeaway for me is the authority. You're going to situate authority somewhere. And uh, and even this argument, even though it doesn't talk about it, all it talks about is re is removing a need to stand up for the authority of the Bible. You're still situating authority somewhere in this argument, because if you don't, then you don't have a compelling argument to anybody who's an unbeliever. Sam uh, Harris has a way better argument than that, that you have no authority for this. Actually, the, the claim that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and that the words in the New Testament, God has given those to us to know Jesus, is a far, far better argument against Sam Harris than just trying to point to a historical event and hitch your faith to that. That's mm -hmm. not that's that is not uh that's just not gonna work. Uh so authority is a big issue. The second thing I'd say is, while I agree with you, you, you just need to approach people with what their need is. And we have been guilty sometimes of, you know, a strain, you know, we're going to pay attention to the gnat, we're going to strain out the elephant, so to speak. We're going to overlook the big things. When you come to a Christian, the, the biggest need in their life might be repentance from a particular sin. It might be encouragement. It might be any number of things. When you go to an unbeliever, the biggest problem in their life is not their sexual immorality. The biggest problem in their life is not all the idols in their life. The single biggest problem in their life is getting introduced to Jesus Christ so that the Spirit can do His work in their life and begin. That's their biggest problem. And so I agree with this. 
that if you go in, it's like a doctor going in and you have terminal cancer and you also have a hangnail and he decides to focus on the hangnail. I get that point. The problem is with this is, is to say that the whole cure for everything you need to know is just believe that this Jesus is raised from the dead. That is only true in the sense that if you take all the implications from that, what are the implications from that? Well, that's what God has revealed to you in the New Testament. And so I, I do see the point of let's not start with Noah and the flood. But if you want to jettison all of that, you really don't have anything meaningful to say. Right. I, th I think the the summary for me is this could be much better argued if he didn't drive such a huge wedge between the resurrection and the Bible. So like we said at the beginning, we can tether our faith to the resurrection of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection for our sins through the authority and inerrancy of the Bible. That would be a much better way to put this argument. Yeah, let's not kid ourselves that we don't have the power to save people. And so rejiggering Jesus, rejiggering the gospel and all of that kind of thing to get people to come to believe in him and then point to, look, look how many people are coming to my church now that I've rejiggered the message this way. I think we're kidding ourselves if we do that. We don't have the power to save people. All we have is the power to tell the truth. The problem with this approach is it comes across as though, and I'll be kind and say that even though these proponents do believe it, it comes across as the only thing you need to believe is true, is one historical event. That's not what Jesus said. You definitely need to believe that's true or your faith is in vain. But if that's all you believe and that's all the truth there is, even the Bible will tell you, you know, Jane, faith and works. I mean, well, then what do I do? I could just be the same old me who happens to believe in the resurrection of this man. You're kidding yourself. Well, we'll leave it there. There's a lot of takeaways to be had from here. Good uh, as well as bad. And uh, I hope this brings some clarity to the discussion around what, what do we really call people to believe? What's the role of the Bible with the resurrection? These are really important questions. It's worth uh, talking about this because it does go down to the heart of what it is we believe. And uh, we hope that this has clarified things and uh, that you continue thinking about this. We'll see you Friday on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.